Um, so, over the last few months, I, and I did very nearly change what I was going to talk about this morning as well. Um, I thought, really, we should have had a theme of remembrance, but um, I'm not going to do yet another off-the-cuff preach, I'm afraid. So, over the last few months, we've been looking at the book of Ezra in the Old Testament. It's one that you rarely hear anyone preach on, much less do a series on. In fact, I did something I almost never do in preparing um, what I'm going to do today, Uh, and I went to my Bible software to look up sermons on this passage that people like Tim Keller, John Piper, Spurgeon, Don Carson have preached. None of them have preached on this passage, or at least not in their published sermon collections. Uh, There might be a good reason for that. Um, So I'm hoping that I haven't taken on too much here. I might be a bit foolish to take on a passage that many of the greatest preachers of the last couple of centuries haven't themselves spoken on. Um, So, just going back to where we are. uh, If you don't know where Ezra is in your Bibles, it's there. Um, Towards the end of the Old Testament narrative. God's people have been in exile in Babylon for 70 years, living away from their land. Um, And when the power in the land changes, the Persian Empire takes over. And just as Isaiah had prophesied back in the 8th century BC, uh, in Isaiah 44, sorry, Caroline's posting to Facebook and it's interfering with my... Right. Um, In Isaiah 44, he sends some of the people back to Jerusalem to rebuild. And they start, as we heard, by reinstituting regular worship together, um, cross-generationally. They face opposition to rebuilding the temple. God overcomes that opposition on their behalf, and their opponents end up having to pay the bill, which I think is great. The temple is then rebuilt and dedicated, although without the glory of God that accompanied the dedication of the tabernacle and the first temple. And then Ezra returns and leads a rediscovery of God's word, or at least the first half of this, of what we now regard as God's word. Um, And we've learned a number of lessons as we've gone through this rather obscure book of the Bible. It's not obscure, actually. It plays an important part in the narrative of God's people. First of all, we've learned that God is doing something bigger than we see at the time. We've also learned that... Well, you tell me what we've learned. See if anyone has actually learned anything. I know what I've learned. Anyone else learned anything as we've gone through it? That God has his hand on history... Yeah. I don't quite like the word in control, but I'd go with he has his hand on history. The importance of worship, the primacy of worship. Yep. It wasn't as good as before. Yep, okay. Yeah. When we say it wasn't as good as before, how could we develop that or rephrase that maybe? It was different. It was actually God's move for that generation as opposed to the expectations of the previous generation. And what did we learn in connection with that? 
they wept, they were disappointed, and the younger generation were delighted and rejoiced. We have to recognize what is appropriate for what God is doing in this generation and not hark back to what he was doing in a previous generation. Sorry, nearly went off on one there. Anything else we learnt? Rhythm, yeah. So they reintroduced a rhythm of worship, didn't they? Where they reintroduced the, the daily, the weekly, the monthly, the annual um, sacrifices and worship. Yeah, we also learnt something about there is always hope. Um, we saw something right back near the beginning, back in May... It was actually the 19th of May I started this. Um, back in the beginning of May, we learned something about unity. We've already mentioned generational differences. We learned something about the nature of opposition that we faced, didn't we? Anyone remember any of that? It was a long time ago, so I don't expect anyone to. We learned that opposition very often arises when things are going well. We learned that actually... Um, the, the powers of evil use false friends, discouragement, fear, frustration to obstruct what God is doing. And we learn something about facing opposition with prayer, preparedness, and perseverance. And we learned actually about needing to find God in what happens to us as they overcame that opposition. We saw the place of worship again. We saw the place of the prophetic and of holy dissatisfaction. And then finally, the last time we looked at this, we saw something of the place of God's word, didn't we? How actually Ezra rediscovered God's word and the need for a rediscovery of God's word in each generation. I actually had more response to that than I have to anything I've preached here for years. Um, talked about how we need new teachers of God's word in each rising generation. And that when these people rediscovered God's word, it had consequences for them. And it also will for us if we allow ourselves to be shaped and formed by it. So we're going to finish this series this morning. This is going to be the end of a series on Ezra. Over the years, we've not always been that good at finishing series. Sorry, that's just where it appears in the, in the history. We don't need that one either. So, if you do have a Bible, let's turn to Ezra chapter 9. Um, I'll read it. Ezra 9, verses 1 to 4. No, sorry, I think... Yeah. Now, this is a horrific passage, okay? I start with that disclaimer. Um, it's one that really butts up against, or hits up, against our 21st century culture and our way of thinking. Uh, and I'm going to attempt to, to talk about why that might be. So, Ezra 9, verses 1 to 4. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, haven't kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. As I've always said, just sound confident when you say these names and everyone will think you've, you've got it right. They've taken some of, our, of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, 
I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Um, We're then going to look at chapter 10 and verses 1 to 11, and it gets worse here. So, um, while Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, we've been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up, this matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested, and they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehohanan, son of Eliashib. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Within the three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin are gathered in Jerusalem and on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have been unfaithful. You've married foreign women that are adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people around you and from your foreign wives." It's a passage that most of us would probably wish wasn't actually in the Bible. Well, maybe you don't. I do, because I've had to prepare to talk about it. Um, And it's not one that you would actually really choose to do. My favorite approach, which is to work through a whole book of Scripture, has great advantages, um, as it means over time we get to understand something of the greatness of God's purposes in this world and we become familiar with this book in a way that enables us to read it and draw from it ourselves. But this approach also has disadvantages and we come up against one of those today. There are some really tricky bits in the Bible. Some bits you really wish weren't there. Some bits that clash sharply with our cultural world in the 21st century. And we're prone to think that we've got it all right, which is one of the delusions of the Enlightenment, 
or the so-called enlightenment, that hasn't worked itself out yet. But if we believe that all scripture is God-breathed and beneficial for teaching, we have to treat it all as scripture. So, let's try to unravel some of this, shall we? In case you didn't follow the reading very well, the people come to Ezra to say that some of the men of Israel have taken foreign or strange wives. The word strange and foreign in Hebrew and Greek is the same word, so it doesn't necessarily mean foreign. It just means it's our word xenophobe, for example, which we use to refer to foreigners, comes from the Greek word xenos, which just means strange. It means other. It doesn't necessarily mean foreign. Um, so the translators have taken a view there. That doesn't mean wives who didn't have the same type of passport. Um, it means wives who worshipped very different gods and who were likely to lead the men away from the worship of the living God. Okay, That's what this word foreign or strange means. And we read this through a filter um, where... Because of the culture we live in, we count it, we think of it in terms of race or nationality. That's not necessarily what the text is referring to here. And the way, uh, I don't know who remembers from the last time we talked, what had happened just before this incident? Who was Ezra? Yes, he was a man, a a scribe, a teacher of, of God's word, a man thoroughly soaked in scripture. And he had come there with a, the sole purpose of teaching these people God's word. Ooh, I don't know how we got there. Um, so, and the way this is worded suggests that it's because they've been reading Exodus and Deuteronomy. The language, the wording is extremely similar to the instructions in Exodus and Deuteronomy. It's Exodus 34, 11, 16, Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 4, if you really want to know, um, that preceded bans on taking foreign wives. So what's happened is they have rediscovered God's word. It would have been scrolls for them. It wouldn't have been a, a book, um, and it wouldn't have had the New Testament in it. But they've rediscovered it. They've, Having rediscovered it, they've gone off and read it, and having read it, they've come to Ezra, and said, Ezra, we're not living the way that this says we should be living. And I'm sure Ezra thought, oh, why did you have to go reading it for yourselves? But I think it's glorious that they did. The wording is extremely similar. So they've clearly been reading what Ezra's told them to go off and read, and have decided actually, something's not right here. The way we are living doesn't tie up with what is written in these scrolls. And Ezra then does what every church leader always does whenever a problem arises. He goes away to pray. That's a joke. Um, It's what every church leader should do when a problem arises. I'd love to say it's what I always do. If I did, I'd have to cross my fingers behind my back. But Ezra then goes away to pray in the bit that we didn't read. And then in chapter 10, they call a conference of the people in Jerusalem. 
and he summons everybody to get together in Jerusalem. It was December, and it was raining. It's one of the rare occasions when Scripture talks to us about the weather, which adds to the rather gloomy atmosphere of this whole episode. I just imagine on a day like yesterday, having to stand out in the open um, and have a conference. So they set up a commission which investigates each of the cases. And those who've married foreign wives have to separate from them and any children they've had by them. Now this collides sharply, doesn't it? I almost heard an intake of breath there. This collides sharply with our conception in the 21st century of how things should be. Am I the only one who thinks this collides sharply? Am I the only one who's shocked by this? Good. Um, And I don't think there's an easy answer on this one. Um, I have read some of the apologetic books, and frankly, I think the answers they come up with are pretty lame. Um, So I'm not going to embarrass myself by trying to, to use some of those. What I am going to say is this is that we are living two and a half thousand years away from the world in which these people lived. And I don't think we can look down our culturally superior noses at them and condemn them. Because we don't live in the world in which they lived. We don't live in a world in which the people all around us are trying to destroy us. And there are other cases in Scripture where other tribes tried to marry into Israel in order to, um, or into Judah, in order to um, defeat them. So we don't live in the world they lived in. We have no concept of the world they lived in where the whole time you were threatened by those around you. It was a very, very, very different world. They have faced opposition ever since the day they returned to that land, and they will continue to do so if you read on into Nehemiah. We're also not told what happened when these wives and children were separated from their Jewish husbands and fathers. But we should note that when Abraham and Sarah sent... I've written Rahab here, and it wasn't Rahab, it was Hagar... When Abraham and Sarah sent Hagar and her son Ishmael off, who was it who came and looked after Hagar and Ishmael? Sorry? No, it's better than an angel. It was God himself. Hagar and her son are sent away, and God himself comes and cares for them. This idea that the God of the Old Testament is vicious and nasty simply does not bear reading. There are things in it that we find very difficult to explain, but the idea that it's a vicious and nasty God is frankly wrong. Um, So when Abraham and Sarah sent Hagar and Ishmael off, it's God himself who comes and looks after them and cares for them. The Old Testament divorce laws had a whole series of protections in place for women who were divorced. Israel was the only um, people group 
in the ancient world in which that was the case, in which, the, in which there was any protection for women who'd been badly treated. Now, we aren't told, so you can take this or leave it, um, but we aren't told. But I suspect, and one of the things that struck me as I read this, is this was not a blanket, send them all away. Actually, Ezra set up a commission here which looked at these case by case. So I suspect that the commission set up by Ezra to go over everything case by case also considered how to treat those wives and children. Um, I might be wrong there. I'm not, you know, I wouldn't go to the stake over it, but um, I suspect that's what's going on. Um, I might be wrong. Now, please listen very carefully to this next bit. Um, you need to be very clear on what I am not saying this morning because I don't want people going out and saying, Greg said this. So what I am not saying is that people should not marry foreigners. I am not saying that. The Bible is not saying that. And people taking scripture to say that have led to all sorts of problems in a country that quite a few of you came from. So I am not saying that, okay? I am also not saying that you should separate from your spouse if they are not a Christian. I am not saying that. Do you all realize that? Those are two things I am absolutely not saying, uh, and I will get really cross if I hear anybody saying that that's what I said. It does not say, it is not saying that people should separate from their non-Christian spouses. Uh, And 1 Corinthians 7 verses 12 to 16 makes that extremely clear. Okay? Um, Makes it very clear that Christian believers should not normally separate from their non-Christian spouses, but should stay with them. So what on earth can we learn from this rather tricky episode in our Bibles. Well, what I am saying, there are two things I am saying here. So these are things that I am saying, okay? I am not saying you shouldn't marry a foreigner, and I am not saying you should separate from a non-Christian spouse, okay? What I am saying is this. I think there are two things we can learn. The first is to do with holiness, And actually, the idea of holiness rubs up against our 21st century culture and actually our 21st century Christian culture. Holiness is not about being really spiritual, walking around two or three feet off the ground, um, walking through walls and that kind of thing, and being all spirit and no body, um, being so heavenly you're of no earthly use. That is not what holiness is. Um, when I've stayed with Tim and Rachel they have a bucket which is holy um, in Tanzania they have a a bucket which is holy how can a bucket be holy? yeah this particular bucket isn't set apart for God but this bucket is set apart for clean drinking water Okay, It is a holy bucket because it is set apart to be used only for one thing. And holiness is not about being really spiritual and outwardly nice and kind and all of that stuff. Being holy 
is about being set apart for God. So when we talk about being a holy people, we are talking about being people who are set apart for God. Because that's what the word holy means. And what strikes me as I read this passage, and again, this does butt up so hard against our 21st century culture, is that actually these people were prepared to make radical changes to be obedient to God, even doing what our culture would probably deem, well, I I deem it when I read it, to be wrong or unhealthy. I don't know if you deem it, I do. Uh, I think there's something wrong with us if we don't have a bad reaction to this passage. Um, But actually, holiness is about being prepared to take radical action to be obedient to God. Are you with me here? Right, good. Um, You know, when I look at people like Tim and Rachel, they left a life in this country to go off and live in Tanzania, as did Matt and Amy. Um, Seb Allwright has left what could have been a perfectly good life here to, to follow God in doing what he believes God has called him to. Holiness is about being prepared to be radical, to be obedient to God. Um, in, our, in the church we were in previously, and there are people down through history who've done likewise. Um, William Carey, uh, anyone heard of William Carey? Right, he's known as the father of modern mission. Um, he did some pretty awful stuff, actually. Um, I have to teach on the origins of global mission at King School of Theology. And when I looked at William Carey's life, I thought, do I really want to talk about this man? Because actually, he did some pretty awful stuff. He treated his family really, really badly. Um, he did it in obedience to God. John Wesley had a terrible marriage. Um, so I'm not advocating that we, that we do neglect our families. You know, I think there is a way in God in which we can be holy and obedient and also treat those around us well. So please, I am not advocating that we mistreat our families, ignore our families' needs, or, you know, for me to say to Sue when I get home today, oh, you know, I really believe God's called me to Timbuktu. I'm off. You know, you're on your own. That's not holiness. That's not the way God has called us to be. Um, So please, again, don't mishear what I'm saying. But we also, in our previous church, we talked very often about a guy called C.T. Studd. Anyone ever heard of C.T. Studd? He was one of what was known as the Cambridge Seven. Um, And C.T. Studd gave up a fortune, and he was a world-class cricketer. He played cricket for England, I I don't know whether that's good or not, but um, I think they've won again this morning, haven't they? But, you know, C.T. Studd was a world-class cricketer. He was the, what's his name, the batsman. Oh, you're all as keen on cricket as I am. Anyway, he was the the leading batsman of his his age. That's the one. Yes. Um, And he also inherited a vast fortune. He would have been, in our modern world, he'd have been a Joe Root and a multimillionaire. Um, He gave the money away to missions, gave up the cricket and went and lived the rest of his life in Africa and India um, doing mission. And actually, he had a huge impact in 
on the mission field. So this was a man who was prepared to be radical, to be radically different, to be obedient to God. He did take, he, he took his wife with him. So, so the first thing I think we can learn from, the, how does this keep moving on? Do you keep moving it? All right, okay. Um, so the first thing I think we take from this passage is the place of holiness. Um, and I think we need to grasp something of what holiness is. Holiness is not about being really spiritual and airy-fairy. Holiness is about saying, I am going to live the way God called me to. I'm going to be set apart to him to live the way he calls me to and to accomplish in this life what he's called me to accomplish. Holiness is not about saying, uh, I'm going to forget about this life and worry about heaven. Holiness is actually saying, I am going to be set apart for God in this world and I'm going to live for him in this world and I'm going to do what he calls me to in this world. And in our Christian world, that has become somewhat diluted, I would say, in the time that I've been a Christian. I can remember when I first became a Christian, which was five years ago, um, we used to regularly hear people talk about holiness. Uh, Very, very rarely do we hear people talk about holiness nowadays. My... Oh, right. What you mean in his Bible app? Yeah. Um... It might be worth someone saying to Ellen that we'll be a few minutes earlier than I said to her. If someone wants to go out and do that short sermon. Um, By the way, that clock is slow. Chris didn't start the two-minute silence too early. It's very rarely you'll hear a preacher say the clock's slow. (laughs) Sorry? Um, By the way, we asked Chris to do the remembrance, the act of remembrance this morning, because Chris served in the military. Um, and we felt he could do it with integrity, and I think he did. And it was really good. Please don't ask him what he did in the military, though, because if he tells you, he'll have to kill you. Um, so the second thing that we learn from this passage, I think, is something about the place of Scripture in our lives. Um, we talked last time... And I was amazed at the impact from this, actually. But we talked last time about each generation having to rediscover God's word for itself. And my experience has been that as I encounter God in the Bible, my view of the world is challenged. And I am changed as I put myself under God's authority my life. One of our problems in the world in which we live is that we put ourselves in the place of judgment over scripture, whereas actually we need to put ourselves under God's word. Now that doesn't mean that anyone who's married a foreign wife needs to put them away. That is not what scripture is teaching here. Um, Or a strange wife. You could could use that as an argument if your wife's a bit strange, couldn't you? Uh, I'm digging a deeper pit here, aren't I? Um, But... Yeah, Greg said. Um, Just one other point on this as well, by the way, is that these were marriages that should never, ever have happened in the first place. That's the other point that I did miss earlier. Now, that doesn't mean that if you think you made a mistake, that is a reason for divorce either. Um, But actually, 
there, there are, there's a whole lot more in here than we have time to cover this morning. But my experience has been that as I encounter the God who reveals himself in this Bible, I'm changed as I put myself under his authority as revealed in Scripture. I, one of the biggest changes I ever made was when I was 26, I had a very good job. I mean, I'm not trying to show off here. I mean, I'm not trying to say I was really radical. I, wasn't, I don't think it was that radical, really. Um, but when I was about 20, no, more than 26, about 28, I had a very good job. I was, um, I was an area manager for a company that I, I had 15 shops that I was responsible for, um, and I had about 100 people working for me. Uh, and it was a very good job. In fact, it was with a bakery company, which now bears my name. Um, but I can't say that they're named after me. Um, but well, it was with a company that was a predecessor to, to them, um, but which is now part of the same company. And I can remember going to church one Sunday and just in, I can't even remember the passage, it was somewhere in Romans, but actually encountering God that morning in the book of Romans, I think it was probably Romans 12, which has become very much the kind of chapter that I, um, what's the word, would call my life passage, I suppose. Uh, Romans 12 is the one that talks about um, submit yourselves therefore to God, um, which is your spiritual form of worship, and you will prove his will, which is wholly acceptable and perfect. Um, but anyway, it might have been that passage. But I can remember coming out that morning with a conviction, and I think Sue was pregnant at the time with our first child, Anne. Um, well, she wasn't Anne then. She was just a, a bump. But um, So um, I can remember coming out of church. I think it was that while we were expecting Anne, um, with just this conviction that I needed to change my job. Um, and I had a very good job. We were probably two years from having taken on, three years from having taken on a mortgage. Um, and I eventually ended up in a very different job where I earned probably less than half, or just over half of what I'd been earning in the previous job. I'd had a company car with the previous job. I used to have a Ford Escort estate. Um, the reason for that was on, we, we used to have to move stuff between our shops. Um, and so on a Saturday afternoon, we were allowed 5% of what was called sales returns per week for each of our shops. And one of the ridiculous things we used to do to manage the statistics was on a Saturday afternoon, I would have calculated on Saturday morning how much stale return there was in all my shops and if any of them had over 5%, um, I would drive to that shop, collect a whole load of bread at about 3 o'clock and take it to a shop that had less than 5%, um, which got me out of trouble in the, monthly, in the weekly meeting on a Monday morning. It's, it still happens, that sort of stuff. Why did I tell you that? Anyway, I can remember this conviction that I had to change my job, that actually God was calling me out of that. Uh, and I did, and I moved to another job where I was an office manager for a French pharmaceutical company, um, earning considerably less than I'd been earning previously. No car. Um, I used to have to go to work by bus at first because we couldn't afford a car. But actually, God was in that. 
But that was the impact of God's word on my life. And actually, you know, there, there came a point a number of years later when I took on this job where I repeated that experience of considerably reducing my income. Um, but God was in it. You know, it, it was actually God prepared me, I think, by that earlier experience. But my experience has been that as I, in, and we have testimonies throughout this room, I think, of people who have encountered God in his word and been changed by it, been changed by that encounter. Now, if these people hadn't read it, they would never have had to take the action they took. But they were transformed and their nation was transformed by their encounter with God's word and their obedience to God's word. And it's clear to me from what we read that the action these people took was in response to their reading and their rediscovery of God's word. That's why they did it. They had rediscovered God's word, recognized that their lives didn't line up with what they were reading, and instead of trying to argue that it was God's word that was wrong, they realigned their lives. Now, for them, it involved some action that was, frankly, pretty brutal. But I do stick to the line that we are not told what happened to those wives, and I do believe that the case-by-case reviewing of it speaks something of care and caution and concern. So, um, again, you can take that or leave it. But I do think what we see in this episode is something of... It, it brings us up sharp in the world in which we live, against this idea that actually God has called us to be different. He has called us to be people who live according to his word, who are set apart, who are holy people, um, and who don't just go along with doing it the way everybody else does. Now, there is a couple of cautions in all of that. There are too many caveats this morning, but... Um, the cautions I would bring are that we do have to understand the culture in which we live. You know, we, the, one, of, uh, one of the professors who taught me has, has a, a phrase which I might just unpack slightly here. He talks about how we need to be inculturated. In other words, we need to be in the culture in which we live and understand that culture and be able to communicate with that culture. That's why we use Facebook to communicate stuff in the church. If we're not on Facebook, we're not communicating with people out there. I'm not going to go into that any further because we talked about that on Wednesday. But um, we have to be inculturated. We have to be able to communicate with the culture in which we live. If we don't, we will never communicate the gospel successfully to those around us. And we talked the other evening about how um, we are seeking to do that in a way that, um, well, if you weren't there, you missed it. Um, but we, we sought to explain the other evening why we do that. Now, the second thing we can do, though, is to become enculturated, which means we become so embedded in the culture that we fail to recognize when the culture is at odds with the gospel when the culture is at odds with what God would call us to. And that is when the church compromises. The church in Nazi Germany was enculturated. 
I actually think the church in this country has become enculturated as well, but that's a whole separate issue. You and I need to make sure that we understand the culture, that we are able to communicate to the culture. How on earth did I get onto this? But that in communicating to the culture, we don't become so embedded and absorbed in the culture that we become like it. Does that make sense? So, the two things I take from this passage, and I'm going to close because Ellen's going to come in and the children are going to tell us what they've been doing. Um, I assume that's what they're going to do. Yeah. Um, two things we take from this passage, I think, are a message of holiness, a challenge to be prepared to be different, to be set apart, to live differently from the world around us. And also to have a place for God's word in our lives where we are prepared not just to read it, because it begins with reading it. If you don't read it, you'll never be challenged, I'll tell you that. Um, but if you read it, you'll never be, don't read it, you'll never be changed either. We need God's word to have a place in our lives where we allow it to change us, to transform us, and to conform us to the image of God. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we'll let the children come back in. Father, we... Lord, we do struggle when we read some of these passages that to us reflect a culture and a way of being that is very alien and very hostile and one we struggle to cope with. Lord, we, we want to pray that as we read passages like this one, we will be able to recognize something of who you are in it, uh, not to read into it those things that are not there, but also to be able to recognize what it is that you're teaching us because your word says that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching. Lord, we believe this passage is profitable for teaching and we want to be men and women who are holy, who are set apart and who are being conformed to your image. And we want to be men and women who respond to your word, not in a knee-jerk way that strips verses out of context and that pastes them onto our lives, but which is rooted in a deep understanding of who you are as revealed in your word. To be men and women who, and children and young people who are increasingly conformed to your image, who are becoming more like you day by day and who are able to communicate who you are to a world which is also an alien culture. Father, we just want to pray that you will go with each of us this week as we go into your world into your creation, that you'll equip each of us to communicate with the culture around us without being conformed to that culture. We pray that in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.